Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. A little while ago, I was driving, I was driving the truck, I was driving Abigail, my, my seven-year-old, home from gymnastics practice. Uh, it was a beautiful day, the sun was shining, it was, uh, it was nice weather outside, and, and it was quiet in the truck. When Abigail and I go on a drive, we talk for a little bit, but we both really sort of value the quiet. Abigail likes to read, and so she was behind me in the truck reading, and I was thinking, Abigail's been reading a book lately about, um, it's talking mice and rats and badgers, and the, I think the rats are evil. That's about as far as I've gotten in the story. But all of a sudden, this voice pipes up from the back. She says, Dad... Why doesn't anything ever happen? And I, I knew what she meant. You probably know what she meant. She wasn't talking about her schedule, right? She was talking about adventure. Why doesn't adventure ever happen? Why doesn't a wizard ever show up at my door with a shortage of dwarves? Why is there no danger of sleeping on dragon's gold? Why does Arthur never come back to England? Why don't things like that ever happen? And you know, I, I think a lot of us, right, as we, as we grew up, we, we ran into that question. Why doesn't, why doesn't adventure happen in life? We read all of these stories, we're so excited, and then day-to-day -day life just doesn't seem to match that. Even as we get older and our, sort of, our uh, awareness, our consciousness kind of expands beyond ourselves, right? We start thinking about communities, society at a, as a large. I think that question still haunts us in the back of our minds. D does what's happening in society really matter? Does anything ever happen there? Is, there? is there an arc to history? Is there a story? Or is everything just sort of Monday in, Monday out? Sort of the myth of Sisyphus. We just push the rock up the hill and it rolls down again the next day. We have this sense that life must be meaningful, that something has to be happening, but what? And how would we see it, right? If there's an arc to history, what does it look like? That's the question I want to ask you today. I, does anything ever really happen? I think that's one of the key questions driving our gospel text. But to see that, we're going to need to back up a little. We're going to need a little, get a little more of the context than what's in the lectionary. And then we also are going to need to do some tweaking to the way that we think about time. There's a particular way that we in our sort of culture think about history that is different from what Jesus' hearers would have been thinking. And we've got to sort of be aware of that going in. And just as a preview, I think the text tells us three things. Three things about happenings that the apostles learn, they're all intertwined in the text, and Jesus initiates all of them. He reminds them of what has happened. He shows them what is happening, and he prepares them for what's going to happen. So let's back up. We'll get the full context, and then we can begin to see how each of these teachings is present. Uh, you know, the text actually, this text, the story of the transfiguration ripples throughout the New Testament, right? Peter talks about it in his letter. Paul talks about it in one of his letters, um, the Gospel of John doesn't tell the story because the Gospel of John was written later, so he knows you've already read it, but he references it at the beginning. Um, and then all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell this story. And they all tell it connected to a previous conversation. Each of them starts with a timestamp. Some days later, and then they go up the mountain, right? But the conversation that happened some days before is important to all of the Gospel writers, that you understand the two together. So what I'd like to do is back up to verse 18. We'll read a little bit of that conversation, and then we'll go into the mountain. So beginning in verse 18, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, 
the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So that's the context, right? And then our passage begins, and you can see it in your bulletin, right? Eight days later, roughly, they go up the mountain, and something happens there that's connected to this first teaching. In fact, in a way, what happens on the mountain is, is sort of the, um, the teaching writ large, right? So if you remember when you were in high school, right, you, had a, you probably had an English teacher that would tell you, if you're going to tell a story, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them, right? That's the secret to all great writing. I'm told. <laughs> and Jesus' conversation here before the mountain is preparing them. He's telling them what he's going to tell them. And then they're going to see it on the mountain and throughout the rest of the gospel. And if we want to stretch the metaphor, the road to Emmaus, right? That's telling them what he's told them. Okay. What happens on the, manifest, on the mountain is the manifestation of the teaching that happens before the mountain. But before we get into that, I want to draw our, like I said earlier, I'm going to draw our attention to a distinction in the way we think about time and about history. Because if we don't, if we just walk straight in the text, we're going to miss something important. So let's go back to this question of happenings. Does anything ever really happen? I mentioned a minute ago the myth of Sisyphus. That was a, it was a Greek myth that Sisyphus was condemned for all of eternity to push a rock up a hill, and then at the end of every day would roll back down and he'd just repeat over and over and over again. And I really think there's a way in which that has become our cultural script. If anything does happen, it just seems to be that the rock rolls back down the hill. The things we think we've made progress on seem to just fall apart. Right? We, we, we're experiencing some of that this week, even, looking at the news. In response to that, we either become depressed, or like the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus said, we, we pretend we imagine these sort of individualized meanings for ourselves, right? And, and we sort of think, my life can be meaningful for me, but for society at large, we're a little more cynical, right? A little more cynical about human history having meaning. Now, obviously, this isn't the scriptural perspective. This isn't what we proclaim every Sunday, right? This isn't what we believe. But if we're not careful, this way of looking at the world actually seeps into the church, um, there was a study published in 2005 based on extensive interviews and surveys with adolescents around the country, thousands and thousands of adolescents. And the, the researchers published this really startling finding. They said, you know, if you ask youth around the country what, they, what their religion is, the dominant religion, the most, you know, the most common religion is Christianity. And that's, that's what we'd expect. That's what all of the sort of research up to that point said. But if you ask them what they believe, what they understand about the way that the world functions, at their core, how they're making sense of things, what you get is not recognizable as Christianity. They said it's not Christianity, it's not any other world religion. They described it this way. They said it's a, a sort of moral, therapeutic deism. God exists. He tells me right from wrong. He helps me to feel better, to get over challenges. But he's not, and this is important, he's not engaged in the world. God isn't engaged in history, right? That's, that's the deism part, is God is separate 
from what's happening in my day-to-day life and in the day-to-day life of nations over the course of time. He's not doing anything. If there's something that you come away with today, something that shifts, I hope it's this. God is doing something in the world today. He has done, he is doing, and he promises that he will do something. That all of time, all of history, right, is this arc of the story of God's working in the world. So how do we get there? Where, where do we begin? I think we begin, honestly, even as a spiritual discipline, I think we begin with curiosity. We begin with the question that Jesus initiates with the apostles. Who do the people say that I am? That's sort of an odd question, right? If, if the mayor of Athens, you know, Kelly Gertz, if he got up tomorrow or he was in his staff and he said, guys, all right, who do the people say that I am? That, the mayor? That, <laughs> Kelly Gertz? I don't, you know, what, how do you answer that? And their, their responses are even odder. That's what I'm trying to draw out is let's look at their responses are not something no one in that meeting, that meeting could go on for days. No one would be like, you know what? I really think you're Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Right? No, one's, no one's plugging a person into the answer to that question. But that's what the people do. They say John the Baptist. Well, we know John the Baptist is dead. Right? That's earlier in the text. He's died. Why? Why then would they bring him up? And then they say, or others say, Elijah or some other of the prophets. And that's your clue. That's, that's the thing that cues you into what's going on. All right? Because there's a prophecy in Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5, that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord. You see, the Hebrew consciousness was organized around the expectation that God was doing something. That in the beginning, God created the world. At the end of time, the day of the Lord, God was going to make things right. And the arc of history, the whole story, was the story not of humanity's progress, but of God's working in the world. So Jesus is prodding them. He's saying, think about it in this way. He's questioning, what is the significance of me? What am I doing in that story? What is God doing? And they've got answers. They've got theories. They understand the question, and they're going for it. But one of the things that comes out of this conversation is that they don't really get it. Peter hits on the answer, but he doesn't understand it yet. So he says, truthfully, you're the Christ. But it's clear, right, if you look at Matthew and Mark, especially their conversation, it's clear he doesn't understand what the Christ means. And so Jesus takes them up the mountain. That's the the link, right? Jesus takes them up the mountain to teach them to reshape their understanding of what's happening. So we'll get to the other part of what Jesus says in a minute. But this first piece is what I want us to grasp right now, what Jesus is reshaping in them so that they can understand what he's doing and what he's going to do. So he takes them up the mountain, and notice the parallels here, right? It's even in our text, right? Mountains in Scripture are always significant. Eden was on a mountain. Moses met God on a mountain. Moses comes down with the law from a mountain. Jerusalem is on a mountain. Elijah experiences the presence of God on a mountain. So you got to think about these apostles, right? These first century Jews, they've just announced, we believe you're the Christ, you're the anointed one. And Jesus says, let's go up a mountain. Right? They're expecting something. Something is working in their minds. They go up the mountain, and all of a sudden, everything shifts. Reality bends. I love this. There's an interpretation that says Jesus doesn't actually change. What changes is everything else. What changes is the apostles' perspective. Right? You, you don't have to go for that, but just either way, think about all of a sudden the apostles see Christ as he truly is. 
They see his glory. And the parallels with what God has done in the past continue and intensify. Now Jesus begins to shine like the sun, right? In our Old Testament passage, again, we see this has happened before in Israel's history. Moses came down from the mountain reflecting the glory of God. And now Jesus, but not just his face, his whole being, and not just reflecting, but radiating glory. And then Moses and Elijah actually appear, and they begin talking with Jesus. And we'll talk about what they talked about in a minute, but first... I think that at this moment, something happens in the mind of Peter. You are the Christ. Jesus takes them up a mountain. Jesus begins to shine like the sun, and he sees, he sees Moses and Elijah. He sees the law and the prophets flanking on either side of the anointed one. I think there's more here than just, Jesus, just Peter meeting his heroes, Okay. There's more here. When I was a kid, there was an animated series about Elijah, and I, love, I loved it. I watched it over and over again. I told my sister, I'm going to be a prophet when I grow up, and she said, that's not on the table anymore. <laughs> if Elijah had appeared to me, I would have been like, this is really cool. That's, that's not what's happening with Peter. Peter, raised as a Jewish boy in Israel in the first century, would have learned at the lap of his mother not just the stories about Moses and Elijah, but their significance. So he sees Moses and he sees Elijah. He sees the Christ. And I think that Peter, Peter is looking at the end of the world. And he's terrified. Mark uh, clues us into this, right? Uh, Luke is sort of, he's, um, he's delicate. He says, Peter doesn't know what he's saying. But Mark, you remember, Mark knew Peter. Mark was intimately aware of, of Peter's testimony. In fact, um, Mark, Peter may have been the main source for Mark's gospel, right? And so he clues us into what's going on and says, Peter was terrified because he was looking at the end of the world. And I think to an extent, he was right. That was, I would say that's the first piece of what we're trying to understand, of what the text has to tell us, is Jesus brought them up the mountain to say, yes. This is the culmination of history. You're right. God has been doing something, and it's all leading up to this point. It's all leading up to the work of the Christ. So what happens on the mountain is that Christ, that's our point one, right, is that Christ is shown to be the resolution, the finale, the goal of everything God has been doing in history. But there's more. Peter hasn't, like I said earlier, Peter hasn't grasped it yet. He hasn't understood it. He said truthfully that Jesus was the Christ, but he doesn't know what that means. So let me build three tents, he says, right? One for each of you. One for each of these great things God has done. One for each leg of the journey. The law, the prophets, the Christ. You see, Peter's still thinking of the Christ as only another stage, another representative, another prophet, another intermediary between God and people, but only that. And so he looks at Moses and Elijah and the Christ and proposes to treat them all the same. And that, that's when the cloud descends, right? God, the Spirit, comes on the mountain. The voice of God breaks over the rocks like thunder. And Matthew says that Peter fell on his face. You see, the, the Israelites had a history with that cloud. It's the cloud that descended upon the mountain when the people, how did they respond? When Moses led them out of Egypt, the cloud comes on the mountain, the voice comes like thunder, and the people are terrified. And they beg Moses, you go up in our stead. We can't bear the presence of God. It's the same cloud that comes upon the tent of meeting, right? And it says, the text says that Moses could not go into the tent because the glory of the Lord was there. 
It's the cloud that descends upon the temple when Solomon blesses it. And it says the priests couldn't fulfill their function because the glory of the Lord was there. The glory of the Lord comes upon that mountain. And if Peter was scared before, he's out of his mind now. The voice interrupts him, right? It breaks in. It says while he was speaking and the voice comes in and covers over him because Peter is committing blasphemy and he doesn't, he doesn't realize it. God breaks in. And what does it say? It's, the voice says, the voice of the father says, this is my son, listen to him. The Christ is not just the next leg of the journey. He's not just the next thing God is doing. Jesus is God. Where before there was the law and the prophets, we now have the Trinity on the mountain. So there's our second point. What is God doing on the mountain? He's revealing his son. He's revealing the fullness of his plan that God himself was taking the stage. No more would there be representatives. No more would there be intermediaries. No more would the people be dependent upon the law and the prophets to lead them to God. God himself had come among his people. John the Apostle, reflecting on this moment decades later, wrote, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. Peter, at the end of his life, when he knows that he is on his way to be executed, he writes a letter to the church, and he says, I was there on the mountain. He says, I heard the voice of the Father. I saw with my eyes the majesty of the Son. Peter saw God. Now, there's a third point I want to draw out today. It's there in the text. The story doesn't just leave them on the mountain. In every place where this story is told, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, it's bound to another teaching. And that's important because the gospel writers, then all three of them are testifying again. To understand all of this, this teaching is integral. The teaching about the suffering of Christ. In each of the gospels, when Peter identifies Jesus Remember, that happens each time before they go up the mountain. When Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, Jesus responds by teaching him what it means that he's the Christ, that the Christ will suffer and die. You see, in this teaching around the mountain, Jesus tells his disciple what God has done. He shows them what God is doing, and he prepares them for what God is going to do. Luke actually weaves it further. Luke alone tells us what Elijah and Moses are talking about. They're talking about Jerusalem. They spoke with him about his death. Actually, in Greek, it's even more explicit. Okay, it says, they spoke with him about, and then the Greek word is his exodus. So Moses is talking to Jesus, not about Moses' exodus, but about Jesus' exodus. What did Moses do in the exodus? He led forth a people. What does Christ do on the cross? He purchases, he ransoms a people. What did, Moses, what did the people do when Moses called them out of Egypt? They abandoned their lives in Egypt and followed him through the waters. What do we do when Christ calls us out of, our, of sin and death? We abandon the strivings of this world and we follow Christ through the waters of baptism. Jesus is preparing them. He's shifting their understanding of what it means to be the Christ. If you want to be my disciple, he says, if you want to be one of my people, you must follow me into my death. That's what God is doing. That's what he's trying to show them on the mountain. Jesus was pre preparing them for what was about to happen. He showed them that he, showed them that he was the fulfillment of all that God had been doing, of the law and the prophets. He revealed to them that he himself was God, breaking into the pattern of history. 
and he was preparing them for the work he was about to do in ransoming a people. Now, in closing, I'd like to come back to this question I started with today, right? The question my seven-year-old put to me as we were driving in the truck, does anything ever happen? And if something happens, how do we keep our eyes on it? How do I see it when the events in the news seem so overwhelming or when day-to-day life feels so monotonous? Throughout history, one of the ways that the people of God have approached this problem has always been through rhythms and patterns, okay? Think about, even in the beginning, think about the week ending on the Sabbath, right? Think about Passover repeating year after year. Every year, the people journeyed to Jerusalem, right? Think about the feasts and the fasts that God prescribed. We're creatures of habit. Our habits teach us. They inform who we are and what we believe, Think of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, right? All of these reminders to keep us focused on what God has done and what he promises still to do. This coming Wednesday, we'll have Ash Wednesday. We're going to begin again the next stage in that journey, one of those rhythms that we practice year after year. And it's based actually on this story. In the gospel, it says that when Jesus came down from the mountain, he set his face towards Jerusalem. On Wednesday, we also will set our faces towards Jerusalem, towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's a part of the pattern that we repeat each year to remind ourselves that the people of God live our lives according to what God has done, according to what God is doing, and according to what God will do. And so I want to commend to you that our Savior has gone to the cross that he might purchase for us life everlasting. Come, let us follow him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.